One of the things I do is I ensure that there's a process, a space, if you want to call it a space, for thinking about the challenges and opportunities that the firm faces and bringing those people together so that we can craft a response. So that's kind of how it works. So I'm in many senses a facilitator of that thinking as opposed to leading that thinking or being responsible for coming up with all the ideas. Welcome to Professionally Challenged, war stories from leaders driving change in law firms. Your hosts are Rob Patterson of Parkins Lane Consulting Group and Paul Evans of Toro Digital. Today's guest is Pierre D'Angelo, the Chief Strategy Officer of Allen's Linklaters. Allen's Linklaters are one of Australia and Asia's oldest and largest law firms. Established in 1822 by George Allen, the firm now has 130 partners and over 500 lawyers. In Australia, the firm has offices in Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney and Perth, and in the Asian region, its offices include Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City and Port Moresby. Allen's is part of an international alliance with the Linklaters Group, and the Linklaters Group is a network of 40 offices in 28 countries globally. Pierre commenced his career as a lawyer with Allen's, and in 2001, he became the group manager for the business development and client care team. From there, he became responsible for the firm's pricing, and in 2018, was appointed the chief strategy officer. Please note that these views are Pierre's only, and they are not the views of the firm. So, Pierre, what does the role of the chief strategy officer entail? I think it probably varies from firm to firm, but what it uh, entails for me, at least, is focus on three things here at the firm. I look after, I still look after the firm's pricing function. Um, I look after the, um, the firm's strategy function, and I also am, uh, I head up the commercial management group, who which works with the business units or practice streams to help them with the financial strategy and their financial management. In the um, on the strategy side of things, that uh, that involves uh, a few things really. One part of it is managing what you broadly call strategy projects that are cross-functional across the firm. So often there are projects that just don't fit in one of the functional groupings in the firm and involve many. And so it's often useful to have somebody to um, coordinate that across the firm. So that's one part of what I do. The other part of what I do is I, I work with the firm's, um, in a very broad sense, leadership group, all those partners in leadership positions, um, to help the firm, help them um, develop strategy for the firm and perhaps more importantly, to then help them drive the implement, implementation of uh, that strategy. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's an important role. I, I think there's a, you know, the, the road to hell's paved with brilliant strategies that have never been implemented. So, <laughs> I, well, well, I think I, I think that's actually, a, you know, I think it's a, it's it's actually a great uh, quote and insight. And actually, implementation is a major challenge in any uh, professional services firm, uh, simply because, well, there are actually lots of reasons, but one of them is simply because people are so busy. And so they're so busy on the today, on servicing and meeting clients' needs today, that it's often difficult to set aside enough time to or space to, to think about the future and to do those things today that are going to make a difference in the future. Yeah, very, very true. All right. So, and I quite like the role. If you ever leave and give me a yell. I will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
how do you achieve the buy-in of strategy by the partnership? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Look, the reality of it is um, that's not my role. The reality is that that's the role of the partners that are in leadership positions or the people that are in leadership positions. Each of them, um, uh, part of their role is, 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 to, is to get the buy-in and engagement of the groups that they lead. But one of the things I do is I ensure that there's a process, uh, a space, if you want to call it a space, um, for thinking about the challenges and opportunities that the firm faces and bringing those people together so that we can craft a response. So that's kind of how it works. So I'm in many senses a facilitator of that thinking as opposed to um, leading that thinking or, or being responsible for coming up with all the ideas. Yeah. Okay. Is it the internal challenges or the external like market that... Look, it can, it can, it can be both, both yeah. but, but the, it's usually, almost always part of what I try and do and, and uh, is, is, is be responsive to external um, opportunities and, and, and threats, if you want to call them that. And that then, that then involves internal challenges in terms of reshaping how you do things, um, but it's usually in response to ex perceived external opportunities. Okay, that's great. I, I, I love that as a concept, creating that space. As you were saying before, I think very often in professional services firms, they don't allow themselves that space to, to consider and, and, and go over strategy. So I think as a concept, that's a really good idea um, you know, that maybe COOs could adopt. Nice segue in terms of the external forces. Um, one of my favourite tools is Porter's Five Forces. And um, being in a larger firm, you would have a particular line of sight over some of those um, challenges that are facing um, people in the industry. So in looking at some of the key elements of Porter's Five Forces, say, for example, um, the bargaining power of suppliers, what are you seeing in that space? That's a great question. Uh, I, I think um, definitely one of the things that we are seeing and have seen over recent years, which is a new thing for the Australian market, is, is much greater mobility of, of partners. Um, there are people who keep score on these things, but... Um, the, the number of partners uh, moving from one firm to another, another has increased and that's very much the case for the US market as well and I think obviously that started there earlier. Um, and that, you know, that presents a real challenge for all firms because it means if you want to attract and retain the best talent then you've got to maintain a compelling value proposition as a firm to, to attract and retain those people. Yeah. Are you finding that you know, like with technology the way it is, you know, you can dial up a server, dial up um, software and start up your own boutique firm tomorrow if you really wanted. Do you find that in the larger firms that's where the mobility is or is it between the firms? It's mostly, in, in, mostly between firms and from firms to clients um, rather than necessarily people going out and, 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 and starting up their own their own enterprises. I mean, it's possible and you, you occasionally get that, but um, the, the, the majority of people would be going laterally to between firms or, or between firms and clients. Okay. What about new entrants? There's a, some large ones in particular that I think might be waiting their way into your patch. Yeah, well, it's, well, it's, look, you know, 
that's the one that everyone writes about as well. Um, every, the, the, the legal media is very interested in, in all of that and, and much has been written about the accounting firms and the challenge that they um, present um, for, for law firms. And everyone has a bit of a different view on, on what may happen there. Um, I, I think, look, they're obviously very strong brands um, and I think there's a sort of an assumption that goes with them that somehow that scale and the breadth of services that they um, possess somehow is going to give them uh, a, a sort of an advantage and, and, and some sort of lead to some sort of an inevitable success. Uh, look, I just think you can't necessarily make that assumption. I think within that assumption there's work to be done. Um, they have to effectively um, leverage those attributes in order to to um, to, uh, to to break into the market. Now, I've no doubt that they'll find segments of the market in which they'll succeed. Um, but whether you know to what extent and in which areas remains actually remains to be seen. I think conflict is going to be continue to be an issue. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I got to agree. I. I, you know, I'm probably the oldest person in the room and remember when, you know, the last time all the, the larger county firms set up their own law firms internally and that was a huge issue, you know. Yeah, and, that, and they had a particular issue there around, I think it was around consulting versus audit yes. side of things and I, that's different now but you still have other conflict issues that, yeah. that come up and that's already a very concentrated industry both within Australia and globally. So... Uh, that will present its own challenges, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I'm just yep. kind of curious. Where are they recruiting from? From Like are they... I, I think um, they're mostly recruiting from law firms, yeah. mostly, re and they're, uh, they're um, trying to take some of those laterals. Mm -hmm. um, what they've got to do, though, then, is bind them together into, in, in, <laughs> yeah. in, into, into a group that works cohesively and collaboratively to deliver a, a great... Client experience, like a startup would, like a startup law firm would have to do, would have to do, and bigger resources behind them. That's easier to say. Yeah, you know, yeah. Running, around, running around with a checkbook, you can do that. Uh, but then actually holding that group for five and ten years to to build something special and to build deep client relationships, it's quite another thing. Absolutely, it takes a while. Yeah, yeah, it'll be yeah, it will be interesting. And just sort of harking back again, sort of to the conflict. You know, if you've got a you know, a corporate advisory um, of PwC, then I'm presuming you can't be doing the DD on the prospectus, you know. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I don't know, but yeah, yeah but you, you, it's certainly a question that you'd have to ask and answer, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah, interesting. And then the breadth of services just multiplies those possibilities out yeah, many, many times over. Absolutely. What about New Law? Have they shot a, you know, or fired a shot across the bow of larger firms at all? Look, I think, again, much has been written about them and I think, you know, I think the personal view, I think the threat's probably been overplayed. Um, that's without diminishing them in any way. I, I think it's a question of what space are you playing in and what competencies are you leveraging to get advantage. And some of the new law entrants are really good at leveraging technology and process, um, particularly on work that lends itself um, to, the, to, to those things or more routine work, um, or work that's more predictable and there's more of a flow, flow to it. So there's definitely a, a space in the market at which new law entrants um, can, can thrive. Some of those new law, and, and some will do just that. Um, others will 
perhaps want to move up the value chain. But every time they want to move into a new space, there are people, there are incumbents in that space that will will fight back and will compete. Yeah. And um, and the capabilities that they need to break into that space are different. And so I don't think you can just assume it's an inevitable march. I think there's every battle and you've got to watch how every battle pl plays out. So I'm not as pessimistic though, because I think one of the things actually that just generally speaking, uh, you know, whether it was foreign firms coming to Australia, the big four, um, new law, I think one of the things that all the, that, that all of the new entrants have done is they've actually spurred on the incumbent law firms. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of incumbent law firms today, I think they're very different to what they were 10 years ago. And I think um, they've evolved and become much more, comp much more competitive. So uh, I don't think things have stood still quite in the same way that some of the uh, consultants and media might like to uh, say when they're voicing their opinions. Yeah, yeah look, and, and having had a little bit of experience in that space myself, I think the other thing too is as they move up the value chain, they then start to almost take on some of the attributes that, you know, the, some of the overheads and some of the, the, the systems and, and infrastructure that, that they don't have and so it gives them a cost advantage or, a, you know, or a, a speed advantage. All of a sudden they have to start taking those on and then they start almost looking like, you know, the people they're competing with. That's quite interesting. Well, that's right. I mean, in order to be, and, and it's, you know, it's challenging to talk about this in abstract, but yeah. in order to be successful in a particular space in the market, mm. you need to have certain competencies and systems and processes yes. and structure. Mm. And as they move into those spaces and seek to compete with the incumbents, mm. the incumbents have probably over time optimised yes. those systems. And so they'll, they'll gravitate to looking more and more like those people. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's quite an interesting space. Okay, so that's new entrance. Um, the the other side of that, in terms of Porter's five forces, is the threat of substitutes. Um, what are you seeing in that space? A lot is um, there's all, there's a lot of commentary on the growth of in-house counsel, and I, I think I think you know that's a that's a really interesting story in the sense that it's the metrics show that it's probably the fastest growing segment of the legal market. Um, and you know, if you were a, a writer, this is what I'd be writing about because it's, mm. it, it's, it's where the growth has really been. Mm. And um, I think they, you know, everyone has different views. Some older practitioners have seen this as a bit of a cycle, um, in-house getting bigger and smaller. Yeah. And look, I think overall, though, um, the, the in-house teams will continue to grow where it makes sense to do so. And, and the other thing we've seen is they're becoming more sophisticated over time. But I don't think that's the end of, of external firms because I think what it means for external firms is they've got to be much clearer about what needs they're meeting and what value they're adding and excel in those areas. And there, there are spaces in which external firms can excel which are harder for in-house teams to excel in. So, for example, you know, an external firm can bring the experience of doing a particular kind of transaction across many sectors and many clients. Um, and I actually think that rather than see them necessarily as competitors, um, see them more as complementary. Um, one of the things we're seeing in our, certainly in our best, and you know, one of the things we're seeing as sort of best practice is the effective melding or moulding or, or coming together of internal and external resources so that you bring the strengths of the in-house team together with the strengths of the external team 
to bear on whatever challenge the client's facing and create real value that way. Yeah. And that's, to me, I think the future, or one of the great challenges in the future and, and, and a place where we can create a lot of value. It is interesting. I, um, I'd never heard of this term until yesterday, but there, someone was telling me about clock, which is... Yeah, um, the, um, what is it, the <sighs> Chief Legal Operations uh, Group. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very very well established in the US and mm. relatively new in Australia. Yeah, and it seems that yeah, a lot of their focus is around that and um, it seems that also some of the larger firms are, you know, are collaborating around things like technology as well. Well, I think... Uh, we're probably going slightly off piece, but I, th I think that um, I think it's actually a good development. I think what had you know one of the responses to the more for less challenge that clients have faced, i.e., doing more with the same resources or less resources, mm. is to try and negotiate better deals, better pricing, which is yeah. completely understandable. That will only take you so far, though. Yes, and um, and that led to procurement becoming involved in, mm. in, in the buying relationship as, a, as another player, another actor. Uh, what is happening now is, is that is becoming more sophisticated and, and, you, and, the, and the, the advent of legal operations is, is trying to create more win-win solution and, and more value yeah. and, and bringing a degree of sophistication to that. Not only the procurement process but also then the management of those resources once they've been procured. Mm. So it, I can see that provided you've got the scale to be able to afford that sort of a resource, I can see that the, the value that might add. Yeah. Okay. It's good. So like legal project management and those types it's all, of things? It's all those it? things. So, yeah. um, and I think, I think what they actually do might depend a little bit on the client, but yeah. certainly on the procurement of it, making sure that selecting the right firms for the right jobs and that, 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 that then those jobs are staffed in the right way. Mm. So they've, you know, there's... But then also, and this is the bit where traditional procurement would then leave the paddock then, yep. whereas the operations people, as I understand in the, in the US, will tend to, if there's a large deal or transaction or litigation, they'll, they'll keep an overview to make sure that the thing's running well okay. and that the budgets yeah. are, you know, the budgeting's properly being done, the resources are being properly used, yeah. there's no waste, um, it's being delivered as as was contracted and described, all that sort of stuff. So it's an ongoing management of the resource role rather than just the buying of it okay. yep. up the oh. front. So, so are these lawyers that are? Some are ex-lawyers. Mm -hmm. Some are ex-BD people. I think there's at least half a dozen in Australia now. Okay. And I've met a few of them. They're, they're very, very accomplished people, usually with deep legal industry expertise mm. um, and providing a, you know, a real... If you're an organisation with a, a large spend... Yeah, you know, providing real value in terms of making sure that you're getting value from that spend. Yeah, and the right firm, the yeah. right people. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, something that um, I think you're probably well um, versed in is the bargaining power of buyers, particularly in your in your pricing role. Um, how's that going? Is it you know the, you often hear about the downward fee pressure and everybody talks about it. It's sort of become a like a, an urban myth. Is, is that what you're seeing? Oh, look, ab look, at, at one level, absolutely. So at, at one level, um, you know, we've, I don't know how far back you have to go, but there was a time <laughs> when, when, when procurement were not involved in, yeah. in the purchase of legal services and now um, they almost always are. Mm. So... Um, and that's you know part of part of their function. I mean, it's broader than than just pricing, but part of their function is to try and drive a, a, a tough bargain. 
Um, and that's fine because that's understandable. I think one of the things that our clients face is uh, more regulation um, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the need for greater productivity within themselves and the legal function is not immune from that. So it's quite natural that they would seek a contribution from their external providers to that. Um, but the, but the, the end or the but is that, you know, having, having struck your bargain when it comes to pricing, it's only one lever and yes. it's probably, you could argue, not the most important lever. Mm. Um, you know, I've sort of alluded to it already. I mean, it's how, how your lawyers then combine with the client and the client's resources to deliver the outcome that yeah. really makes a difference and, and the selection of the right people to do the job. And, you know, if you get those things right, the cost, I won't say it'll take care of itself, but the value created is such that the cost is in perspective. Yep, yep. Um, and so just managing price, i.e. the rate, is actually, to me, you, you, you're actually not managing what really matters. Yeah, which is the outcome. Which is the outcome and getting, and getting a better outcome for the, for the organisation. Yeah, yeah um, totally agree. I think that, yeah, that's often lost in that. That whole equation, particularly around pricing, is yeah you know, the outcome. Yeah, and I think look, I think the other side, you know, it's a two-sided story. Um, it's also incumbent upon lawyers, I think, or any professional firm, to help the client understand. You know, if if you want to be paid a greater rate or greater price, help them understand why that's justified. Yes, you know, what are the, what are the reasons why? Mm. Um, you know, the terrible analogy, but you know, why buy the Merck? Mm-hmm. instead of yeah. the Holden. Um, you know, if safety matters to you, then maybe you buy the Merck. I don't know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to be disparaging to anybody here, but no, there, there are features no. and benefits attracted to every offer. And yes. it's if you have a particular offer, it's incumbent on you to communicate them and to find clients who value them. Yeah. And uh, I think um, we need to get a little bit more sophisticated at that as well. Yeah. So the greater use of al- alternative fee arrangements, again, it seems to be one of those things that, you know, Value billing has been out there forever, and I'm not, you know, I think it seems to be honoured in the breach rather than the observance. Um, you know, retainers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's your view on on the alternative fee arrangements that are actually being used in practice? Yeah, uh, look, there is definitely steady growth in 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 the use of alternative fee arrangements, mm-hmm. and in, you know, and it depends on how you define them because mm-hmm. different people define them differently, but if 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 you if you allow cap fees and fixed fees, based on that have been built up on an hourly rate basis to fall within the definition of alternative, then um, they're growing strongly because there's a great swing towards you know one of the most valued attributes of pricing that clients are looking for is is certainty and predictability over yeah. cost, and so it can you know that can be delivered on an hourly rates basis with really effective budgeting and good communication, um, but it can also be delivered by agreeing a fixed price where that's possible as well. Mm-hmm. So, and, and so we're definitely seeing a, you know, a steady growth in the use of fixed pricing and cap pricing where the scope allows that to happen. What hasn't happened though is, is, is again, the, 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 the much hyped end of the billable hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and again, I'm probably a little, con- a little bit contrarian on this, but certainly the billable hour is alive and kicking and doing really well. And yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's work that actually is hard to scope. Um, sometimes you have to get to work really quickly, and you can't spend two weeks crafting an alternative fee structure. Um, 
you know, all sorts of reasons why yeah. people will, will revert to early rates. Sometimes the trust between client and 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 the organisation is, is is good and high, and they know that they're going to get a fair outcome operating on that yes. basis. Yep. There's a minimal, um, I think the economists call transaction costs in that yep. in putting place that arrangement, and so it works well where where you've got that transparency mm-hmm. and that and that trust. So there'll always be room for hourly rates in my view, and it'll, it'll always be part of the mix. Yes. Um, but sort of tackling the whole value billing sort of movement just at, at another level, and again, it's a view that not everyone would subscribe to, I, I would say that even in hourly billing, there is value billing is still present because not all firms charge the same hourly rate. No. So, the, the, you know, implicit in a firm that charges higher hourly rates is the idea that they're going to deliver more value for each hour. Yes. Now, um, and ideally, you want people to live up to that promise, but that's why um, clients will shop, you know, will go to different firms with different kinds of problems because the the, the value delivered is commensurate to the, to yeah. the hourly rate. Is that sort of price value perception or price quality perception? Is there. So, yeah. so, so in my mind, value billing doesn't equal use of alternative fee arrangements. It equals matching the value delivered to the price paid yeah. in, in, my, in my mind. Heidi Gardner drew the um, professional services firm's attention to the benefits of fostering fostering collaboration between practice groups and law firm. Um, it struck me that collaboration is particularly effective in a larger firm environment where you do have, you know, um, pockets of skills and really, um, really detailed niche areas of knowledge. Um, have you seen examples of collaboration working to the, the benefit of both the firm and the client? Uh, almost every day. Yeah. I, th- I think collaboration is just... You call it different things, teamwork, collaboration, working <laughs> together. Um, but it's really important and it's the bringing together of people, you know, people with different attributes, different skills, different perspectives yes. to create um, a great solution for clients that's fit, fit for the purpose that's, that it's required. I think that, um, you know, as you've pointed out, in, in particularly in larger firms where um, there's been a drive towards specialisation, yes. the ability to combine those specialists to create a solution is actually a core cool competency and is actually something that can differentiate mm. firms and 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 and, and um, uh, you know certainly the firm I'm in does it really really well. So I think collaboration uh, is 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 absolutely a key to driving value. But it's not only collaboration within the firm; it's also collaboration with the client and yeah. working with the in-house legal, working with the executives, and how you do that. Um, that's really important and joint problem solving. Um, with your client um, and, and, and trying to create value that way is really, really a real key. Yeah. The other thing I'd say in terms of like a tangible example uh, is you see it a lot in the innovation space. So, and it's a particularly interesting one for law firms because you know, if you think about w- where a situation where you, you, you do identify a client need or problem to be solved and that client need um, you know, does lend itself to uh, the application of process and technology to to bring yes. down costs and, and make it more efficient. All of a sudden, sitting around that table to create that solution, you okay, you still need the lawyer with the legal input, but you also need um, the guy with the IT or the lady with the IT perspectives. Yes. Apologies there. And, and you need, um, you may need some process experts, 
you'll need a project manager to knit it all together. You might need a pricing person at the table to work out how on earth you're going to charge for that yeah. innovation <laughs> yes. um, and capture mm. some of the value that you create. Mm. So all of a sudden, um, the successful launch of any legal tech product is, is, is actually of necessity an effective collaboration between three, four, five disciplines. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's a big change. And so collaboration, in my mind, is growing in its importance. Yeah. It's kind of exciting, I, I think, in a way, in that I think of how law firms once tended to behave, which was sort of that black box mentality where, you know, give it to us, we'll solve it, and we'll give it back. That's a real move away from that. Um, yeah. To almost being sort of embedded in a client, in a way. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look, I think, I think, <laughs> I think what's happened is the ways of certainly the best of us, it's, it, we've become more flexible in the ways of working. Yeah. So there are circumstances in which a client might want just a black box approach. Like yeah. I don't have time to engage very much on this. I just need you to solve it. Um, you run with it. Just come to me when there's key decisions to be made. Thank you very much. That's yeah. okay. That's fine. That's one way of dealing with an issue. Mm. But there are also some problems that are actually really complex and where you just need the, the client experts as well as your own yeah, experts yeah. around the table kicking the idea around and you need collaboration in order to solve it. So, uh, you know, one of the key things I think to understand is what's the nature of the problem you're trying to solve and then what's the most effective way of tackling it. Yeah. And I think there's there's probably more flexibility in the delivery model now than there's ever been before. Yeah, yeah. that's a good way to put it. Do you think there'll be, um, you know, non-lawyers going to these meetings that are part of the law firm now? Like, do you think that's... It's already happening. It's already happening. It's already happening. Okay. It's already happening. So, obviously, I have to speak a little from experience, but mm. I've you know I've seen well, there are people who are technology experts mm. who drive uh, AI type engines over documents to mm. um, save clients money by not having to review such a large mm. proportion of them. Sort of stuff. Due diligence type yeah. of stuff. Mm. Um, any number of yeah. so so there's a lot of actual cross functional. Uh, service delivery that's going on already mm. and that just of necessity involves you know more people coming to the table and being client facing yeah. cool. and that's again it's probably a nice segue into innovation or creating an innovative culture innovation's a bit like sex everybody claims to be doing it doing lots of it but few are very, very genuinely are um, what's your experience around innovation oh, look I think I think there's a hell of a lot. I mean, look, firstly, just to concede that, you know, the negative perhaps, there's a lot of innovation by press release. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> someone goes out, has a meeting with someone, they have an idea about something and they put a press release out. Or a social media post. Yeah, or, or a social <laughs> media post or, or, or whatever, and you just get the impression that everyone's just doing all this stuff and it's, yeah. all, it's all amazing and it's all really easy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's overblown at the moment. Yeah. It's, a little, the market, it's a little hot. Uh, but I think that it's becoming more mainstream now. It's a part of what we do. Yeah. We, you know, I think all of the larger firms in one way or another are seeking to address the challenge of innovating, the challenge of bringing the new technologies that have become yeah. available yeah. In, into practice and putting them in, into practice in a way that, that's, that's beneficial. And, I mean, I can only see a little across the top tier, I suppose, mm -hmm. is my best vista. And, I, you know, I can see genuine effort to... To in in there at trying uh, to innovate, um, not only with um, the use of technology, but yeah, also yeah. in the, the the nature of the services that are provided to clients. Um, you know, you've, we've seen firms move into different adjacencies. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you know, so I don't think it's one dimensional. I think I think I think actually, there's it's it's gaining momentum, and I think mm. it's something that firms are going to get better at as they become more and more competent yeah. at, at at doing these things. In terms of innovation, as you were saying earlier, some of the difficulty around implementing things in law, well, in any law firm, is just having, you know, lawyers are focused on on doing chargeable work and getting their time and space. So I note some of the larger firms now do have specific innovation roles, in, including your own. Yes, and, and look, uh, and there's a there's a balance to be struck there. So you, I mean, we're all learning how to best organise these mm. resources, um, and people are experimenting I think with different structures yeah. uh, but I think you need you know, I think you need some dedicated resources because yeah. otherwise it gets crowded out by other things um, but mm. you also need the partnership yeah. with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the lawyers that are front of house and are dealing with client problems every day and who are spotting and seeing the problems that need to be solved mm. so it's a it's getting that balance right um, which I think is one of the drivers of, of, of whether this is going to succeed or not yeah. but um, yeah, I think I think it's definitely definitely a factor. Cool. Okay, just on technology, um, many large and um, international law firms are making huge investments in technology. Um, in most instances, it's being used to create new and bespoke service offerings. I, I know Allen's have got a real estate due diligence app. Um, Hall and Wilcox, I know, have an insurance claims triaging app. So it seems like there's there is a focus around that. You and I are both on the ALMG committee and over a couple of, about two years ago we had um, Professor Karim Lakini from Harvard present on creating new industry platforms and at the time I was sort of really excited about it. I thought, oh, how does this relate to, to law firms? But it, it strikes me that firms aren't adopting his sort of suggested wholesale approach to almost restructuring themselves. By and large, they're retaining traditional structures um, still largely employing lawyers um, and utilising technology to sort of create add-ons rather than revolutionising the way law is delivered. Am I being a little bit harsh? Um, Look, I, I think I think maybe, maybe, and maybe it's more a little bit about um, the perspective you're coming from. The, the perspective that certainly that I come out when I, when I look at it is not the degree to which you adopting these new innovative structures, et cetera. But the real question for me is what are the problems we're solving for clients and um, are we providing, you know, the, the best solutions yeah. um, for those problems? And I think that that the existing – well, I think that what with the change that's been happening in the existing law firms, they've, to a very significant extent, been evolving to meet those needs. Now, obviously, there's always going to be a bit of a gap and a bit of chasing the, you know, chasing the puck or you know trying to move with where the <laughs> yeah, market's going. Yeah. Um, and so there'll always be um, people saying, "Oh no, they should do more," and that's probably fair. But I would argue that 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 to a very significant extent, there's been a lot of change that's been happening in 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 in, in the legal industry and in law firms. And as a result, we're still, you know, still delivering, um, you know. In most cases, great services that 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 are, that are fit for purpose, and you know, if if you look at the industry benchmarking um, type stuff that goes around on client satisfaction, um, there's one study that benchmarks satisfaction across four or five different professional services industry, yes. and the highest scores are still in law. 
yep. um, by, yes. by a significant margin. So that's not to say there's any room for complacency. You've got to keep evolving. And, and I think the speed of change has been uh, accelerating. But I don't think we're missing – I don't – I don't think that um, there's uh, a need for a wholesale revolution in the short term. I think it's consistent, meaningful and thoughtful evolution. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think it, it's interesting because, you know, people throw up examples like Uber or Airbnb and, you know, but that's discrete areas and I think the perhaps the false assumption is that therefore technology is going to sweep through everything and change it. But but if people are large, by and largely happy with what they're receiving, perhaps where it might change is more at the bottom end. I wonder, you know, like um, there's a statistic that sort of 85% of legal needs aren't being met by law firms. You know? I think I think that's right. I, I think, and I don't want to say it's all about them, not about us, because clearly yeah. we have to play our part. But I do think that in the in the B2C world. Um, mm. There is a real cost issue and and, and a real affordability Mm. issue. And um, as a result, um, people aren't receiving or obtaining legal assistance where they might need it and and might Mm. benefit from it. And I think there is great scope for um, some of those legal platforms to to, to help people. Um, And so I... I actually, yeah, I do think that, 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 you know, I saw one app a while ago which was help me challenge my parking fine. You know, and, you know, and you can see that that's, you know, that, 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 that could help a lot of people. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of parking fines issued every day. Yeah, so right. so I, think, I, I think at that B2C level yeah. that we could see some very significant businesses actually develop over time. Yeah, agreed. I hope so. I was just thinking on the Airbnb, the Uber, they're quite commoditised products really yeah like yeah accommodation that's right a taxi <laughs> you know they're that's compared right to the well, brain surgery of law like and and, end, and so. they've, able, they've managed to do some clever things mm. um so in both the case of uber and airbnb they've managed to uh get access to and get rents from the use of other people's assets yes yeah you know? yeah yeah that's and, a whole thing. and um I'm sure if there was a similar play that yeah. opportunity in law that someone would have invented it, but um, it doesn't quite work the same way. No, no, it doesn't. As I can tell. Yeah. No, no. There's certainly lots of, I mean, there's certainly examples of lots of new things being tried. Mm. So it'd be really interesting to see how things develop over time. Yeah, okay. Cool. All right, you're a pretty deep thinker. How do you stay abreast of current developments? What are you doing around thought leadership to, to make sure that you're, you're across where things are? Oh, look, I, I would say it's 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 a real challenge. Um, you know, the demands of just everyday working um, can make it really hard to to keep mm. keep abreast of stuff. And there's so much stuff being produced and written that that, that it's almost an impossible task. But but I, you know, you do a few things. I, one mm. of the things I do is I do probably like a lot of people, I subscribe to the you know the McKinsey and the Harvard and the Sloan newsletters, and and yeah. but I try and I try to make a bit of a discipline and practice of reading those, particularly the mm. ones that seem most relevant. I do spend time um, with, you know, really smart people like Joel Borowski and Colin Jasper and others who, who have got deep experience talking about what they see in the market. Yes. That's a great way to, um, to, to, to get your head across material quickly. Yeah. And, um, you know, and when, I, when I can, I also go to, go to conferences and talk to people who are facing the same problems yeah. um, and to see what their perspectives are. Um, but, you know, it, it is a, absolutely a constant challenge. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. 
What's the number one strategy book you would recommend for professionals? Well, that's a big question. There's a lot of strategy books. Look, I can't say I've, I've, I can't say I've read them all, um, so it wouldn't be fair to say, you know, there's a best there's a best one. But there's two that I've read in the last couple of years that have been I found personally really useful. Um, one is called Dual Transformation by Scott Anthony and, a, and some other authors, and mm-hmm. and the reason that's an interesting book is it's about how an incumbent can also become very very innovative and trying okay. to, and trying to run the two. Yep. Two in parallel, because yeah. there's a school of thought that says it can't be done, yes. and there's a school of thought that says it can, but there are some conditions that need to be met, and uh, that's really quite interesting. Yeah, I agree. I actually saw Scott Anthony talk once, and yeah. Seriously impressive. Yeah, very impressive. Seriously impressive. And then the other book that um, I, I use a lot, because it's just so such a simple model and so easy to use, is um, the Playing to Win book by um, Laffey, which is just a great way to do strategic come up with a strategic plan for any group. You know, what's mm. your aspiration? Where do you want to play? How do you want to win? What capabilities do you need to win? Mm. You just sort of this cascading set of questions that are all interlinked uh, around which you can yeah. build a strategy. And I've, I've found that really useful. Yeah. Well, thank you for being very generous with your time today, Pierre. We've really enjoyed it. What we'd like to do is just hit you with some closing questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Um, if someone knew you really well, what is the one thing they would know about you that others would not? I think one thing would be that I um, I love Barossa Reds, but can't stand Seb Blanc. Um, <laughs> I think we're all in headed agreement in yep. this room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. Um, can you nominate another legal industry leader that you hold in great respect um, that you think we should approach to help us with our podcast? Look, there, there are a lot of people here that I work with that mm-hmm. I hold, hold in great respect. But if I'm thinking sort of outside the firm, um, two of my mentors over the years have been um, Joel Borowski and Colin Jasper, um, mm-hmm. real veterans of the industry and really know their stuff. Um, so, um, you know, always interesting to have a chat to. Brent, I'll definitely have a chat with them both. If you could lead, we might change this, if you could lead any organisation in the world, Except for Allen's, what would that be? Oh, look, you know, I think it, there's no doubt it would be absolutely fascinating to be a leader in one of the global firms. Yeah. Um, because just having to deal with all the challenges we deal with, but then multiplying that out by country after country after country <laughs> yes. and all the different cultural um, norms and laws and all the rest of it would just make it, the complexity would be amazing. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I actually also think in, in many respects I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing because I've, I think Australian firms are as, as well led as, as any in the world, and, yeah. and I think that uh, that um, you know I, I think you could find that if you set, set up shop in London, you'd be dealing with very similar issues to what we're dealing with here in Sydney. Yeah. Just a bit colder, just a little bit cooler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, as I said, thank you again. It's been brilliant. If people want to um, connect with you, what's the best way to connect with you? Um, LinkedIn is the best. LinkedIn. Yeah, definitely right. LinkedIn. Right. Pierre, thanks, Paul, Pierre. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for talking. Thank you for listening to Professionally Challenged. Visit our website at www.professionallychallenged.com and please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, bye for now.